All right, all you musicians out there that want to get your music placed on real Spotify or YouTube playlists for real streams and not some bullshit robot spins, uh, just go to ugrowpromo.com and use the promo code ugrowfullon to get 10% off your first campaign. As you know, and as we say, we have tested this. It really works. And I know, um, Raptors, you guys are working on a new album. You're going to use that, what, what Matt Simpson gave us. And I know, Keelan, when you're ready, you're going to use it. I'm going to use it. Um, and I know we've heard from people that have used it and it, and it really does work. And the caveat to that is make sure your music is not horrible. Hey, this is Chad Stewart from the band Faster Pussycat and creator of Devil's Crown Bloody Mary Mix. Are you sick of the same old generic wake up, break up, headache cure, tomato juice, ice, fake flavors from a jar? Is that the best you can expect from a Bloody Mary Mix? Well, I've created a mix, tried and true. Tested from countless years on the road. When you decide only the best Bloody Mary mix will do, go to devilscrownmix.com. The one that works every time, all the time. Flavorful, spicy, all the things you need to get your head straight. Nights turn into days, wicked mornings transcend into endless possibilities. Try Devil's Crown Bloody Mary mix. You'll think it came from the devil himself. And as a special full-on podcast offer, I'm giving you 20% off your entire purchase by typing in full-on at checkout at devilscrownmix.com. Cheers. It has been a minute. Hello, everybody. I know last week we put up a, a quick little minisode. We've all been running around out different spots. Um, but we're back. Who do we have today, Keelan? Uh, I've been reading this book called Nothing But a Good Time, and we got Tom Bejour and Richard Beanstalk. I'll double check those last names. <laughs> like in the fairy tale, Beanstalk? Could be. All right. Beanstalk. We'll, we'll, we'll sounds get right. Yeah, sounds right. Hi, Damien. Uh, Hello. Tom uh, co-founded Revolver Magazine, and I know we know some people over there. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, Tom is a uh, an album uh, like a producer and a mixer too. Exactly. Produced and mixed albums by Not a Surf and Guided Voices. Guided by Voices. You got it. <laughs> but he also guided voices, like he's guiding <laughs> our voices. He did. But uh, I know you guys enjoy this book as well. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you're all big Warren Striper fans. <laughs> I have absolutely love Striper. Yes, you, you can exactly. talk. Hello. Uh, yes. Hi. This is Rich Beanstalk. Hey, Rich. How are you? Good. We have uh, Tim here. This is Keelan, Damien, and I. Thank you so much for calling in. 
Absolutely. Thank you guys for having us. I think Tom should be on any minute. Yeah, absolutely. Once he calls, I will merge the calls and we'll get this thing going. Excellent. Where are you based How's out of? How's everyone doing? I'm good. Uh, I am based out of uh, Boulder, Colorado. Hmm. Oh, right on. Right yeah. Colorado. Yeah. That's where Mork and Mindy was filmed or based, right? Yes. The, <laughs> the house is just a couple minutes from here. Oh, actually. nice. Hey, nice. Hey, and it go. still looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. I think this is Tom right here. Perfect. Uh, Tom, you there? I am here. Hi, Tom. This is Keelan. We have Tim, Damien, Ike in the room, and Richard is on the phone with us as well. Awesome. Thank- Welcome. Sorry, I'm late. I was looking for. I was like looking for like a Zoom link, and I'm like, oh, where's the link? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I know we're doing it kind of old school, just through the phone. But um, we do really appreciate you guys both for being on the podcast with us. Absolutely. So, um, so real quick, how, Tom, how do you say your last name so I just don't mess it up? Uh, Beaujour. Beaujour. Awesome. Ooh, that's fancy. I like that. <laughs> so It's all French and shit. Yeah, that's <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> so you co-founded the uh, Revolver magazine, correct? Yes. That's pretty amazing because I remember in high school I uh, was a subscriber of that magazine and it was uh, a comic book in the way for the rock and rollers uh, <laughs> back then and I, I just okay. really enjoyed it. Thank you for your patronage. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I did that. I did that from 2000 till when? God, when did I buy? I went from that to this like luxury guitar magazine called Guitar Aficionado. That was the same company. So I think I know I did 98 issues. Whatever that is. <laughs> More than me. <laughs> yeah, 98 years. Yeah, yeah 98 year. years. <laughs> So, so you guys come from from different areas. Like Tom, I know that that you you're producer and mixer, and, and and you know what what comes about to write this book. I mean, to me, it's it's like that version of you know you know the book Please Kill Me, the Legs McNeil book. Yes. This is yeah. what this kind of reminds me, but for this particular moment in time. Yeah, yeah and that's that was, that's a book. That's, you want to go, Tom? No, you can go, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why? Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Well, after you. Yeah, and that's that's it's a please kill me is a book that we're both obviously familiar with, and that that came up a lot when we were discussing doing this. I mean, that sort of is like the ur text of this sort of music oral history. Um, but you know, as far as our our backgrounds and like different things that we've done that have sort of diverged, you know. Professionally, we are we both, you know, sort of sprung from this love for this music, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and we worked for a lot of years together at Guitar World, Guitar World magazine, which is the same company that also did Revolver and did Guitar Aficionado, and and uh, like Tom and I have known each other since the late '90s, and you know the amount of hours and days and probably months at in the office that we wasted, like just talking about this stuff and obsessing over the minutia of like, you know, George Lynch's, yeah, I don't know, like alternate picking technique or <laughs> Brad Beach's, you know, legato sweep technique and all of but just, or anything about this type of music. It's like, it's such a passion for both of us that it was natural. I think we could both say if we were going to do any book, like this was the stuff that we were going to write about. Well, that's kind of great. So the book you're talking about is nothing but a good time that just came out recently. And 
um, I was seeing tons of people talking about it on social media, and I was a bit skeptical at first when I saw the ad because I wasn't sure if it was just like this little. Well, it is. I don't want to say it's a super niche book, but it's for a certain audience where it's like, unless you're an uber fan of bands like Warrant and Striper and Slaughter, instead of like just the big Motley Crue, uh, Van Halen, Ozzy, this covers like everything, and I'm totally in that audience. So. Once I saw that it was more in detail on the every band that uh, had success in the 80s and early 90s, um, I actually latched onto it. And I can't, I, there's so much I want to talk about, but I, I'm so in the audience of what you both uh, thought would be uh, a great book to work on. And I'm glad you did. I, you know, we both, like, it, it, getting back to Please Kill Me, like, that sort of was like our quiet, I, it, you know, only time will tell if we pulled it off, like please kill me stands what 20 years after its publication is like the book on that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? And like in our, in our most grandiose and most hopeful moments, you know, we hope that what we did can stand, like stand on a shelf next to it. Like that in, I, you know, that then in 10 years from now, like this is still the book on that. That was, you know, sort of like, when we when we were despairing and needed to get ourselves psyched, like that's really like the you know the goal that you kind of don't want to share because it makes you sound like an insane person. But like, let's try and do the book on this where maybe no one else feels like they need to do another one. You know, it'd be hard to do another book on television yeah. and 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 stuff now. You know, and yeah. so because we'll you, see if we may we'll, we'll see. Because <laughs> you really do you cover you cover all the big bands even before. Um, they made it like you've got Dawkins in here when they were just the boys and, um, you know, Striper when they were Rock's regime and you go into detail band like names. <laughs> yeah, the band names all with a Z or double X's. <laughs> but like you cover every detail where you see how these bands uh, came out, whether it was to L.A. or if they were still in Philadelphia, like Cinderella and what they did to make it. And uh, you never hear these stories. It's always just you get the. Uh, the same old, you know, Motley Crue story of all the crazy um, stuff that was in the news all the time as it was, but um, you really go into detail. So like you said, it will be hard to recreate a book or do it better than this because you really covered from the very beginning of these people's careers to the, literally the very end and, and careers that are still going uh, to this day. Yeah, I think, and, and, and honestly, like looking at it now, I think if, if, if I were to, to realize that was what we were going to do, it probably would have been much more, much harder to actually say, okay, let's do this. Cause it, it, it was a deep dive. Um, and it was intense to, to do it that way, but we felt like it, the, that was the only way to sort of tell the whole story because there's so much that happens before your favorite band appears on MTV. You know, like there, there's years and years, and sometimes if you're Twisted Sister or Quiet Riot, there's a decade of work that went into it. And it's a really significant decade, even if it wasn't really done in the mainstream public eye. And so that's really, that, that tells so much of the story. I mean, a, a lot of stuff that happens after that, I mean, it's a little different for every band, but there's also, there's a shared arc in some ways you know bamf is out first record or second record like you get success you maybe hopefully you make it to the arenas like you get the fame and the fortune and everything goes along with it then i mean do you have the decline um and th- that story needs to be told as well but the the early stuff is so 
rich and especially when you're talking not just to the guys who eventually did make it but maybe band members who didn't you know go along for that part of the ride and get their perspective and all these other people who were on the scene um it really beyond just telling the story of bands like that's how you really do tell the story of a scene and the creation of a scene and the creation of a movement. And so that is hopefully, I mean, that's really what the book is. I think even more than the story of these bands. So let me, let me ask you this because I'm, I'm honestly was not familiar with the majority of bands in this scene. So where, where do you guys grow up? Are you, are you from the West coast? Is that, were you on the sunset strip during that time or? Uh, I grew up in New York city. Okay. Like in, I'm a, one of these weird, kids that grew up in Manhattan um oddly across like on the same block that my school was on JJ French from Twisted Sister lived on that block he even grew up on that block but he still lived there now his whole life so we would kind of you know it'd be like 19 19 I'm um, age myself but like 1985 and we'd be like out in the park across from the school yeah. like smoking cigarettes and we'd see JJ French uh jog by like in a leotard like he was a serious jogger like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like oh shit there's a dude from twisted sister wow. um but no like i grew up in i grew up in new york and so it wasn't like definitely like the the sort of nexus point we had like the cat club and there was like one good college radio station that broadcast it but we were not, I was not quote unquote in the shit, as they say. Yeah, well, especially growing up in New York, because, I mean, you're coming up, say, 85, but that's not an arbitrary year. Twisted Sisters are already on the way out, and New York is just anthrax, crow mags, you know what I mean? Agnostic front at that time, because that's when that started to take root. And, you know, other than bands like, I know, like, there was Sweet Pain that was out in Jersey or maybe Long Island. Like, what was going on locally with bands in New York that would fit into this mold or into this book? There was um there were uh, there was a couple like there was um I mean a little bit later on there was a band called Spread Eagle that was a New mm-hmm. York band yeah that um, was cool the, the, you know the Danger Danger guys were like sort of like New York guys there was a there were there was um you know some of the bands were like less glammy there was circuit like there was Circus of Power Raging yes. Slab um you know so there was stuff going on you yeah. know and there was Limelight and there was of course Lamore um. You know, White Lion came out of New York in '85. Like they're like they're queens, but you know, it's <laughs> weird because Manhattan is one thing, and then the outlying yeah. burbs. You know, you've got Skid Row, a couple, you know, like just right there in the next state. But in Manhattan, it's like New York itself has never been like a particularly like hard rock uh, centric town. It's more of an art rock uh, place. So it wasn't like it was happening like right around me. Like when I, in 1985, when I'm like 14, 15, and I'm like a little skate rat kid riding around, um, New York city. Like I was totally into this stuff, but I was in like, a, I was like in a punk band and I played CBs for the first time in like 86. Like I was like, in a weird, like goth Lords of the new church. Oh, type band. So like, yeah. yeah. So, so like there was like, definitely, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a singular, interest at that point but as a guitar player you know quickly it becomes clear like this is you know this is where like the treasure lies you know yeah. what I mean? is, is in these is, is in these metal guys and and you know it was i i tell people and then i'll let rich talk because i always talk to him so like i i was a weird kid like i literally had a cassette 
like a Maxell XL two S, I think, which was the higher, the more expensive one. And one side was poison, open up and say ah, and the other says screw you, flip your wig. <laughs> so I was sort of like riding both sides of the fence a little bit. Schizophrenic. But <laughs> you know, but yeah, but in in a weird way, like you know, there's no Bob Gold is an awesome guitar player and a great lyricist and stuff like that. But like, if you're a, you know, alienated 16 year old and you're like looking for like sort of your aspirational escapist yeah. uh, thing, like, you know, it seems maybe more attractive to be CC DeVille. Like, 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 like you might, it seems like you probably would be having a lot more fun. Well, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll we'll let Rich be, I'm, I'm sorry. And bless you to whoever that was. <laughs> um, but it, it is fascinating. I mean, that says a lot about you because growing up then like, kids that were into that kind of music, a lot of times are there, if you weren't there for the look, you were there for the guitar player, right? There's always a hotshot guitar player, but yeah. there's also like the Greg Ginns of the world and, and like you said, Bob Mould that were doing amazing things on the guitar. It just didn't, it didn't hit people the right way. They probably later on got into like James Honeyman, Scott of the Pretenders and all that cool shit. But you know, yeah. when, when, you're, when you're dealing with... did I. You know, but, exactly. Yeah. So you, you kind of go through that speed thing for a minute. It's probably like sexist for people, you know, you just pound it at first. And then you kind of get to the nuances of it. There you go, yeah. So I, I think it's fascinating that, that you had that cassette with Poison on one side, which is the baseline on that side, and then you had, uh, you know, Husker Du's. Pretty crazy. That's a really cool freedom to that, to just be able to listen to really what you want to. And yeah, because a lot of people weren't like that back exactly, then. You had to be in that, in that thing. So I, I respect but and admire that. And the common thread, though, is it's still like guitar pop. You know what I mean? Like it's all, like Husker Du's actually, like, like sort of like all guitar driven like kind of different weird yeah loud still of power pop like yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly how about you rich where'd you grow up i grew up in new york as well but i grew up in the suburbs i grew up on long island um mm. and in, you know in a lot of ways like i was sort of the target kind of kid for this stuff because it is it, it or at least it feels like it, it is kind of suburban music you know i think that's even why it probably took off in la the way it did and didn't in new york um because la even for being a city is more like a suburban city but i was one of these kids you know uh, gl just glued to mtv and like watching this stuff and just soaking it all in and and really just then living for it you know and buying every magazine and and watching every video and like and just buying every record and just you know really sort of living through this music and this lifestyle even though i was you know too young to really experience it firsthand um but you know still having this real sense of like okay all trust and sister are from this area and like you know uh, Paul Stanley's parents like lived in the town I lived in and like you'd see them at the pizza place and, and that kind of stuff. So like having this sort of, like seeing that sort of stuff around you, but then also feeling, you know, like you were, you were sort of watching it through a screen and watching this stuff happen. Um, and really, you know, for me, I was, this is, was the music I loved, but I also was kind of just, I mean, I was into the heavier stuff that was going on at that time. And also, earlier on like into the pop stuff and and whether it was like stuff like duran duran which to me you know didn't necessarily seem that much different like a little less guitar based but you know there's still people that wore makeup and like looked pretty sharp and some and also had some pretty cool riffs and stuff and like really you know sort of emphasized the rock star side of things um and i think 
that didn't seem that much different to me. Like it wasn't a leap so so much from Duran Duran to to Def Leppard, and I think a lot of people, a lot of kids felt that way at that time. So you know, you could really kind of grasp onto that and and just take in whatever was out there. But it was really the the you know whether you want to call it hair metal or whatever, like that stuff that really I was attracted to, and then also like like Tom, like I play guitar. Um, so, you know, the, the guitar aspect of what these guys were doing can't be overstated. I mean, if you were into guitars and rock and roll in the eighties, especially hard rock in the eighties, like it was, it was hard to not be completely enthralled by what was going on in yeah. this world and to be obsessed by I mean, it. I think a lot of it was a big spill off from like the kiss and the cheap trick years and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And then some people did choose to get into the more punk stuff and then the new wave, like, because bands like Missing Persons, they had amazing players, you know? Bands like Duran Duran had amazing players, but mm-hmm. I think people just kind of, like, glanced over that to get to the party that this kind of music... And then all the bands weren't the same. Twisted Sisters in no way the same as a Poison. Not at all. You know, they were closer to Motorhead at first, you know? But it, it's interesting to me that some people just went straight over that Again, you, you impressed me that you, you did live in that Duran Duran world and had an open mind for that because people went straight from the kiss and all of that, and, and especially Van Halen would jump in the Panama video and all that, straight into Poison, straight into to Motley Crue after 83. Well, I mean, it's a weird thing that we learned making this book, which we didn't really know beforehand, was that, you know, people think of, like, this stuff as being, like, this uh, very <clears throat> major label corporately... Uh, constructed music, especially like in hindsight when they were sort of trying to get rid of it. But, you know, one of the reasons that, that, that Rich was probably into Duran Duran, but then got into like metal is because at some point they let, they let Quiet Riot be on TV. You know, like Mm -hmm. what we discovered is after Van Halen gets signed in, in 1976 or 77 or whatever it is, you know, all these other guys, a lot of them like, George Lynch is already hanging around and Stephen Pierce, he's like creeping his way up to, to LA and like the Don Dock and like, like all these guys are there in LA and thinking they're going to get signed next. Yeah. But they don't get signed. Like there was not like a, a, a linearity of like Van Halen gets signed and then Doc can get signed and blah, 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 get signed. What happened was Van Halen gets signed and then really nobody wants to touch hard rock. Yeah. You know, um, even though Van Halen, so you know, our book kind of starts with these bands being in the wilderness and being considered to be like dinosaurs and totally uncool. And the reason Quiet Riot isn't getting signed and can't, you know, and, and the guys in Dockin' Art is because people are signing missing persons. Mm-hmm. And they're signing Duran uh, Duran and they're signing then the next missing. They're like, we want the next Duran Duran and we want the next Elvis Costello. So there's like four years in there where really um, – Hard, like long-haired, hard rock, guitar-driven music is considered to be totally like declasse and over with. Yeah. Um, and so it really takes Quiet Riot sort of sneaking onto MTV and having this huge hit before this stuff even becomes quote-unquote marketable and/or popular. So there really was like a, a weird period where this stuff was like not cool at all and therefore not on MTV and not on the radio and not in the front of, of kids who like a passive consumer was not getting this, getting this stuff delivered to them. 
I thought it was interesting too how hard they had to fight just to release the record and and get on MTV and and have that video play and you know to kind of break that whole you know this could be marketable. Yeah, I don't think that anyone really like saw you know anyone outside of really the bands themselves and obviously the the managers who are connected to them and that kind of thing, but. In the Hey, Rich, you're doing that thing where you're moving around your house and your, key, and your phone and it goes completely uh, crazy. Your record's keeping. I'm going to sit in one spot. Um, there we go. We got you. We'll see if this is better. Yeah, so I like to pace as I as I speak. Um, but yeah, so, you know, there, this stuff was not, you know, Rudy Sarzo from Quiet Riot it says early in the book, he's like, everyone saw this as dinosaur music. And that is completely accurate. Like the labels wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, nobody wanted anything to do with it. And so, you know, when, when these guys do come around on, on MTV and all that, it's not like anyone could have really seen this coming. I mean, the, the MTV is, it's kind of like a happy accident, but when you, you know, you were specifically asking about the case of quiet riot and like, yeah, this was a band. I mean, forget about the fact that they had been around for a while, but they had had a record deal in the seventies. They put out a couple of records, Sony Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had Randy Rhodes in the band. Randy Rhodes leaves the band for Ozzy. Randy Rhodes, you know, dies in a horrific plane crash. Um, the band had broken up after Randy left. Kevin Dubrow just starts his own band called Dubrow. And like, they start back again from square one, you know, he's already kind of an older guy. And in some ways, like, I mean, kind of like a has been. He's a he actually is a dinosaur on the scene, um, and he's just slogging it out in the clubs again, um, and not even really doing great club dates, but just you know, back at square one, he's doing this Debro thing, Quiet Riots in the rearview mirror, and then you know, a guy named Spencer Proper comes into the picture, who's just a record guy who has had a little bit of success. He worked on a Tina Turner record, a few other things. Um, and he has this idea that some a band should cover "Come On Feel the Noise," just and by a band, it's really like a band, any band. Mm -hmm. um, he sees this as a song that could be a hit. Um, somebody hips him to Debro because he's basically looking for a quote-unquote audience participation type of band. And Quiet Riot had that thing even in the '70s, this sort of rah-rah, you know, chanting, big choruses type of thing. So he winds up at a Debro show, and long story short, he brings this band in, and he's like, "Hey." I have a studio. I'll record some of your songs if you record a cover of this song. Quiet Riot doesn't really, and they change the name back to Quiet Riot. They don't really want to record the song. They do it under sort of duress to get the rest of this record done. They get the record done. Spencer Proper still can't find anybody that actually wants it. CBS wants nothing to do with it, but he eventually gets them to put it out. So, you know, basically this whole thing is happening against nobody's really pushing it. Like, I mean, Spencer Proper isn't really even so sure about this band necessarily, but he's sure about this song. Yeah. Um, and the band is sure about the band, but they're not sure about the song. So like, and the label is not sure about any of it. So really, you know, then this big bang happens and MTV comes along, the song takes off and all that. But at no point is there anyone that is just like, Oh yeah, like this is it. This, and this band is going to be huge, but you know, so it just kind of shows there. it's a lot, a lot of it is just circumstance and luck. And the other part of it is just these guys, their perseverance and not 
giving up. And then eventually, hopefully, they will get to that point where circumstance and luck can play a role. But the fact that they even get to that point and that they've slugged it out for 10 years to do it is impressive in and of itself. Well, and that, that's an interesting story because I always figured because Debro sounded so much like Naughty that I just thought he was a fan. You know what I mean? He's the perfect voice for it. And that's, that's kind of what the thing one because i was a huge slade fan growing up so when i heard someone doing that song because slade never got their their due here in the states right so mm-hmm. it, it was perfect they, they have a whole catalog worth of hit songs that people could have been recording for all these wait, years wait, wait, let me let me inter- let, let me how how old are you i am old enough to have been there i'm old enough to have my first concert be sunny and share and i've seen elvis because <laughs> uh, you get like a super you've got a super i mean you had a super, you have a very young sounding voice. So I was like, I, I was like, since we're on the phone, I was envisioning you as like a 26 year old. Oh, my abs are 26. <laughs> but <I'm>, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. T- Tim is kind All of right. like Dracula. He never ages. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just, I'm, it's just interesting to me. That story is very fascinating. Cause like I said, I always thought like, even on those Japanese albums, like he sounded like naughty to me. So that's, that's a great story. And he does, yeah. yeah. But he wanted nothing. He wanted nothing to do with the song. Um, yeah. You know, and then and actually, yeah, you're right. Slade never got their due here, but they started to, as a result of Quiet Riot, and not even just because you know they had some MTV hits after mm-hmm. that. They had Run Runaway, and that's all like post Quiet Riot. And then of course Quiet Riot winds up doing another Slade song, which doesn't really <laughs> work out for them, pay dividends in the same way, but. But yeah, I always thought he sounded a lot like Naughty as well. It's like this was not a song that was really on his radar at all. He yeah. was sort of he he had no choice but to do it in order to get his stuff made. Interesting. I think Keelan has something. No, I mean I got all kinds of questions. But how did you guys consider who to interview in the book? Um, I know you have literally everyone. Well, sorry, um, did we bug out? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I'll just start by saying, you know, as far as the side, like there were the obvious ones, you know, as far as all the artists, um, you know, and then within there, there's some bands that you talk about, whether it's like Pretty Boy Floyd or or some of these, some of these, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, not like the the platinum A-listers, but you, you use some of these guys to show an example of what it was like, what the experience was like at other levels but then <clears throat> i would say right from the get-go we knew that we weren't just going to go after the artists and that we were going to go after the managers and you know the label people and the producers and the uh, club bookers and all these other people um we knew that a lot of the story would live there and of course you have to have the artists and of course the artists contribute so much to the story but a lot of what the artists have to say they've also said before um, because they've been interviewed for the last 40 years. So you've heard a lot of these stories through their eyes. Yes, so um, but if you combine what they have to say with it, with those same stories being seen through the eyes of, quote-unquote, normal people, you know, people that had jobs and then, or you know, because they worked the... ...perspective um, on stories that maybe you thought you knew, but you don't really know all of it yeah right uh so you pulled some of your sources from past interviews from these people yes i'm back by the way oh uh, uh, yeah I'm, there you are um i yeah. got new i got new for a second there okay um yeah so i could tell that 
um, there's like some back and forth because someone would say, you know, the band did this, and then someone would say that never happened. I'm like, how how did you blend these conversations so seamlessly? It was it was really well done. It it see it you know it usually people are usually eighty percent um, on the same page, so it doesn't get too ugly. Where you know there are only a couple of instances in the book where and. It, it's usually with Don Docker and George Lynch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, like like where one guy says, and then he opened the door, and then the next guy says, no, he closed the door. And you're just like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, um, is it important? <laughs> yeah, but, like, like literally, like, there where people just say, like, you know, he stole my song. No, he didn't. Or, like, where people are really having disagreements about very substantive, possibly legal things, that's usually Don and... and, and um, and George, and there are other people who, 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 um, it's usually more perception things. And that's, but that's, I think the, the way you do it is you just do it the way real life it, life is, which is, you know, people, um, interpreting things that happen, you know, differently. It's like when you guys, you know, if you were to interview five people who, who saw an accident or something, it, people really do remember things differently. And I think that's sort of one of the reasons that the, uh, that the, that the oral history format is, is much more interesting and alive is that you can create sort of a, a story that's moving forward, but yet that has these multiple perspectives and therefore, you know, was it this? Was it that? Was like, was this guy being an asshole? Was that guy being an asshole? Who's being an asshole? Maybe they were both assholes, you know? Um, but that's like how, that's how we, we go through life. And I think that that's what makes the book much more engaging than me or Rich writing a chapter where it's, it's like, you know, like Don Dockin and, and George Lynch do not agree on whether or not alone again, you know, was supposed to be on tooth and nail. And, you know, it's much more exciting to have them, sort of sniping back and forth oh, yeah. at each other. Um, totally comical. So the format really lends itself to sort of multiple, mul- multiple perspectives and, a, you know, and really more, it's not even multiple perspectives. The, the thing, wh- when the book is really cooking, um, which we tried to do as much as possible, you really get, what we're going for more is, is a sense of like, you've got these five dudes in a room telling the story at once and like interrupting each other and which of course is never really going to happen. And you're never going to get all four members of poison or Dokken in a room together for five hours to tell their whole story. It's just not going to happen, but you can create that illusion. And that's really, that's sort of the gig with this thing. You know, when you really get enough people and they're engaged and funny enough, you are creating like a simulated virtual reality hang with the band like this, right and that that's what it feels you know, like that's in the book. really that's, that's what you're really trying to do you know and like because that's never going to happen in real life these guys are never going to be in the same room they may be a, they if they're ever together they're on the same stage you know and, and then they got it but yeah and you've got all different bands uh telling the same story together in this book like It'll be Poison talking about the day they put flyers on the strip, and then you got, I don't know, Motley saying how they had to rip their flyers off and put theirs over them, and then someone else saying they were watching it happen. But everyone's stories of that moment 
were really well put together in this book where maybe you found these sources from um, all different sorts of places, but you put them back together in such a great story where you it's like you're watching a movie of that era in the, through this book. And um, I thought that was really special. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's, that's one of the things <laughs> that really does, you know, kind of make the book pop. It's that, I mean, you know, and again, like we've all seen like the behind the musics and all that stuff, right. but they're so specific to each band. And so when you get that sort of group, you know, or I guess chorus thing happening where it's like all these guys talking together about shared experiences, that's where a lot of kind of the magic happens, whether it's with the flyers or talking about power ballads or talking about, you know, guitar stuff or talking about fashion yeah. Um, you know, it's not just one band's perspective. And I would say also with that, you know, as far as putting it all together, I mean, we did pull a couple quotes here and there, but I'd, I'd say at least probably 90% of what's in the book are all firsthand interviews. Like we That's did over amazing. 200 interviews. Yeah. For the book. So it was really a matter of like asking all these people, these questions. And then, and a lot of times it's like, taking what one person told you yesterday or two months ago or last year, and then putting those same questions to this next person. And that's how you sort of get this response thread right? happening. Right. That's yeah. cool. You get to see it through the lens of different people. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I did have and a question. You can't, you can't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I did have a question for both uh, Richard and Tom. Um, I mean, you guys have a clear passion for music and writing and, you know, a talent for it as well, but what ultimately pushed you down the path of, of writing and journalism? The honest answer yeah, is honest. I got I got out of college and so I graduated in ninety three and my initial goal was to be a guitar player. Like and like I'm gonna do do sessions and and then like I realized after I got out of college that I had like just wasn't good enough. Like I can play guitar. But like I had actually spent time all my time in college in the library, you know, like I'm a child of college professor. So like, I was like fucking getting straight A's and like, I, the, the hours were gone. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like, like I was like, Oh, I'm, and so I realized that like I needed to get a job. And, um, one of the weird things, and we both, both Rich and I owe a lot to this guy who's in the book is Brad Talinsky, who was the editor of guitar world magazine from like night, like, I don't know, 90 to 2015 or something. And I was like, I need to get it. And if you had asked, and I'll, I'll try to make this tight, but oh, no worries. people literally ask me in high school, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I, the real answer is I would say, I want to be a rock star or work at Guitar World Magazine. Like I had every fucking issue of Guitar World Magazine. Nice. Um, and I like, Paul, I was working at a coffee place and I was just like miserable and I auditioned for this band and I didn't get in and everything was just like fucking like total standstill. And I called Guitar World one day and got like the, the weird thing about Brad Talinsky is he always picks up his phone. Like if he's at his desk, it's annoying when you're working with him because like you'll be in the middle of some com very important conversation about the magazine and his phone will ring. And I'll just like pick it up. He'll be like, hold on a second. He picks up his phone. But in my case, it was, you could occur with that, uh, Rich? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I called and like literally was like, do you need interns? And he's like, yeah, we could use an intern. He's like, you know about guitar? I'm like, yeah, I know everything about guitar. I was like, cool, come down tomorrow for a meeting, like for an interview. And like that was sort of it. And so like I didn't, 
do any journalism training in in college. I majored in French literature. Like I I wrote one review for the paper, but I ended up at Guitar World, and then I just, which was sort of like, even though I hadn't worked there, like I knew the thing inside and out. I just busted my ass. You know what's great though? You guys are. You guys are still in the scene. You know, you're making an impact in music. Yeah. You're telling these stories, which is so great. Like for us, everyone so, in this so, room here is a musician, you know, but we also have our, our normal nine to five job, right? So, but uh, I yeah, I think that's great that you guys are still making an impact and, and still in that, that scene. It's great. And it's a great, and then like, so then getting that job, I mean, like, dude, like I was still in bands trying to get signed. I was at a band that was on go-kart and like this, that, the other thing and all that shit. But like, you're suddenly like, in this magical position where it's like next week I'm interviewing Angus Young. Oh, wow. I'm going to Eddie Van Halen's house. You know what I mean? And like, so suddenly awesome. I was like, holy, like this is the fucking, this is way better than waiting tables. <laughs> and doing the band. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? And like, I got to live like, a, and, and, it, and it was a time in the mid nineties, early two thousands where magazines were still, it was the tail end, but it was still a, an actual viable business nice so you got to you know you got to fly to england to interview someone or you got a press junket so it was a really fun job wherein you got to also interview all of your heroes um and and just like you know get free guitars and review guitars it was so it was really the best gig um the funny thing and and then I'll kick it to Rich's though, and he had a similar experience. Having started in 1990, I think February of 94, I started there, which is like two years after like the whole glam metal thing has completely fully collapsed. Even though, and, and this speaks to the hunger of why I wanted to do this book, is even though two, three years before, certainly 89, 90, Nuno, Red Beach, uh, you name it, were you know they were all on the cover one after the other, you know, and like they were the sort of the meat and potatoes of Guitar World. By the time I got there in '94, it was like Kim Thale, <laughs> Mike McCready, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong. Not taking anything right, right. away from these guys, but it was like all of the people I had sort of these metal guys were like it was really like it it had never happened. So there was no opportunity as a journalist coming up to interview all of these people who had completely captured my imagination. I mean, some of them like, yeah, cause, they, cause that's what was going on. I got back to Bob Mould and Dave Maskis, blah, blah, blah. But they're like, do I get to interview Vito Brada for guitar world in 1994? Absolutely not. Yeah. Right. So a lot of those interviews that we got to do for the book were things that we never got to do professionally. Okay. You know, hearing you reflect on that is so awesome. It sounds like you definitely made the right, career and life choice it sounds like you're super happy with it you know well the, the, the thing about revolver back in the day and i know we'll get to rich in a second is it was the only serious music magazine at that time i mean it was like our kerrang you know and it, it it was by people that weren't just into like putting pictures on their wall and wanted good interviews and i know lon could be a little crazy but just to get good information and good interviews and have some up-and-coming bands that were just out of the norm revolver was always the go-to I mean, like, I grew up with Cream Magazine, which is obviously great and funny, and the original Hip Parader when it was all, not Hip Parader, I'm sorry, Rock Scene when it was all the New York scene. So that stuff was fantastic. But, you know, Metal Edge was cool. I'm not going to knock it, but that, that was just like 16 Magazine for me. 
So, so what you guys did at Revolver at the time was fantastic. Well, thank you. Cause we tried really, we, I mean, that was, we tried really hard to like, let's do a, a magazine about this music with like really good photos and art direction and, and good writers and see what happens. And it worked, you know what I mean? Like treat it, treat it with that respect and like humor too, but just to like really give, make like, let's do a really, try and do something really good with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, and I think it actually it, it it worked, which was a great is a. I often forget about that when I'm like, oh, I fucking haven't done anything. But <laughs> and and it's funny because um, when yeah. you, when you talk about that time, like it wasn't only those bands. It wasn't like only just the Warrants and that that weren't like, you know, Anthrax was putting out great albums at that point. Like Sound of White Noise, I know yeah. for a fact came out 28 years ago today. And while that did well, like they were kind of put off to the side. You know what I mean? I think. And everyone will blame Nirvana, but I think the Beastie Boys took the first shot. I think they were on the grassy knoll. And I think even though it was 86, they kind of like were the first ones to kind of knock a hole into this long-haired rock thing. It's possible. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, you know, no one ever really talks about Jane's addiction mm -hmm. in this whole thing, too, you know, of like bringing, of, of, sort of creating that that different space and i mean i'll kick this to rich but we our theory kind of and this is what's not our theory but that we developed in the book that really guns and roses may have had more with dismantling the scene than nirvana ever really could have in a weird way like aesthetically and musically i could see that mm -hmm. and and it's funny because they did it by going back to what came before they did it by being a, a you know hyper and and sensationalized Aerosmith basically you know the way they dressed Slash brought out the Les Paul which people weren't really using Les Pauls I mean I know Randy Rhodes did it for a little bit but like you didn't use a Les Paul you know usually in in the 80s yeah they definitely they they sort of changed the vibe um which is something that we explore in the book that yes of course grunge and Nirvana and all that comes along and you know whether you want to say killed the whole thing or not. I mean, there's some truth to that and then also some not truth to that, but the shift really starts happening with Guns N' Roses. And even though Guns N' Roses are a part of this scene and very sort of baked, I mean, their origins are really baked into it, the Sunset Strip thing. But once Guns N' Roses come out in 1987, you know, even though a lot of the, the signifiers are the same, like they, they, they're coming from a little bit of a different angle and they really are sort of embracing that, you know, sort of classic Aerosmith thing and the stones and, you know, even the dolls in like a different way than say a poison is, you know, and that starts this shift in terms of the way, not only the way the band sounds, but the way that they act and certainly the way that they look, you know, 1987 when Appetite comes out is still kind of the height of the, the spandex, you know, and day glow and heavy makeup era of, of this music. But that goes away pretty quickly. It still lasts throughout the rest of the 80s, but it's not the predominant thing anymore. You know, in 1986, Motley Crue are doing Theater of Pain, and then in 1987, they're doing Girls, 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 and they're riding Harleys and not wearing pink, and they're wearing denim and, and all this stuff. And so a lot of these bands start to look like Guns N' Roses and they're, they're wearing jeans and they're wearing t-shirts and they're wearing cowboy boots. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing. <clears throat> and so 
you know, to the larger point of that is that once, you know, skip ahead a few years and once grunge and everything else comes in, there, there's this seismic shift, but the, it's happening slowly over those last few years. And the, the example I always give is that like poison in 1990 does not look like poison at all in 1986. And that whole change happens without, you know, anyone in the mainstream world knowing about Nirvana or without grunge happening. Like that's all happening just within their own little world. And a lot of that is happening because of a band like Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And then 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 you get the bands like you, you mentioned before, Circus of Power and Junkyard and Sea Hags and all of that. There's a whole nother subgenre of this stuff where they were looking like that based off probably Guns N' Roses. And they're made up of old punk dudes like there was guys like Gary Sunshine and those guys in Circus of Power, which were from Agnostic Front. You had guys in Junkyard from, you know, Brian Baker was in Junkyard, for God's sake, from Minor Threat. So mm-hmm. The Throbs. Yeah, it was just a very interesting time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And just very, tra- I mean, it was really a trend. It's funny. It's like the, it's the height of this stuff. Um, that late 80s time. And then it's also a very, it's a time of like real, transition where when you really look at it it's like a lot of the real signifiers that people think about like you know the big hair and the makeup and all that stuff is actually on its way out even as this stuff is topping the charts yeah i know keelan's got a question the secret secret, like it seems to be like what percentage of new york dolls do you work in like (laughs) If you work in just enough, like Guns N' Roses, like it's like 6%, maybe? Yeah. 7%. But you keep like actual power going and like so that like, you know, a hard rock consumer does not feel like off balance because it's too shambolic or whatever. Like that's the exact right amount. Like when you push it to like 40%, like the throbs or 30%, like Faster Pussycat, who I love too, but like there's a certain point where you, in the same way that the dolls could not connect with an American hard rock mainstream audience. Like it just gets too rickety. Yeah. You well, know, there's a, so there, there's a real, like there's, there's a big difference though, ratio. because when you look at the New York dolls, like let's take Johnny, for example, like you had bands that wanted to look like Johnny thunders, but they didn't play like Johnny thunders. You know what I mean? Like, right. and I, I think a lot of that stuff was surf. I think that's kind of what led to the end of that stuff because it was more surface as it went on. It's like, when you tell a story around a fire plate or a fire pit, like by the time it gets all the way around the circle, it's going to be a little bit different. So things might start with the stones to the dolls, to the velvet underground or whatever, to the heartbreakers. And then by the time it gets there in the eighties, it's just the surface. It's just the big hair. Right. Yeah. And I think even by extension of that, when you get to the late eighties, it's not even people taking those sort of influences, whether it's the dolls or the stones or whoever, it's actually, bands taking the influence of say you know even like a guns and roses mm-hmm. you know who are taking the influence of those original sort of you know who have the original influences and then you, you can have a band in 1990 honestly that's being influenced by bands that came out three years earlier and that are still at their height so by by like 89 90 91 like you know whether it's a band like tough or whoever like they're they're basing themselves on poison you know, or mm-hmm. another band that could be on Guns N' Roses or Motley Crue. And these are not bands that are from the past. These are bands that are actually still at the height of their powers. Yeah. And so that sort of influence loop 
starts to get so small and so tight by the end of the 80s that that's that's what leads to at least some of the downfall i think is that you know it's like people being influenced by by their neighbor instead of even by like things that are legitimately influences you're right we talk all the time like the a good example and you you just gave a great example but a, another good example is you had britney fox trying to be cinderella while cinderella was still there and you know pretty much brand new yeah but cinderella is only like two them. years older than them yeah, yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> that's right and that's what's that's there are common members though yeah but, yeah. but that's yeah. yeah it's weird like people like in our book to admit like you know i think it's in our book they're like yeah, no, Dizzy was obsessed with that. <laughs> like, it's right. weird to be friends with a band, have two guys in the band, and then just really do the band. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and Stevie Rochelle is very open in the book and in any interview about the fact he's like, I looked a lot like Brett Michaels, and yes, I really liked Brett Michaels. Like, he was not shy about that, and he's very open about it, but, like, that's what was going on at that time. Even with guitar licks, like Red Beach would say, you know, this song um, was it full on inspiration from this song. Or when you guys were discussing the ballads of the era, they were saying, well, we just wanted this to be, you know, a little knockoff of this song by Leonard Skinner or whatever. Just everyone was pretty open in your book about discussing their influences and where they got um, their musical ideas from. And, and in the case of the ballads, too, like that's which is like, you know, a lot of the people are like, oh, fucking ballads. But, like, there was really, you know, and there, and definitely there are some really bad, sappy, syrupy, not good power ballads in the quote-unquote glam metal era. But, you know, for a lot of people, like, I, the good ones, and I'll argue that there are a lot of good ones, like Ballad of Jane is really good. I think mm-hmm. House of Pain by, by, by Seth Pussycat is a really good song. Like, these are dudes who are basically, they're like, what? And even like when, um, even Vito Brado with like when the children cry, he's like, I was, I was not trying to write a hit power ballad. I was trying to write something that sounded like dust in the wind. Yeah. You know, these are people who's like their seventies, their seventies heroes had the quiet song. So why the fuck would, wouldn't they do it? You know, like, why wouldn't I try to write dream on or stairway to heaven? Yeah. You know, Only why women is it believe. allowed to me? Yeah. But yeah, but then of course it devolves completely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> then it becomes formula like everything else, and like yeah. for that stuff. And and you brought up great, you know, obviously there's Stairway to Heaven, and I always looked at it as the power ballad was like only women to bleed to kisses every time I look at you or whatever on Revenge because that did nothing, and they thought right. that was gonna be a huge hit. And like that to me is like the the bookends of of that, and that's what that kind of music is known for. Even Twisted Sister had the price, you know. Mm-hmm. It's true. So it's, it's yeah. interesting. Everyone but Motorhead at the time. <laughs> was that? <laughs> but, you know, some of these bands couldn't really pull it off as well, and maybe that's why they didn't. You know, Twisted Sister, yeah, they had the price, but they weren't. Power Ballad didn't really work for them. It didn't really work for a band like Rat. It didn't really work for a band. I mean, Dokken kind of had one, but they weren't really a ballad type of band, and, like, maybe maybe sometimes, like, that was the difference. Yeah. You know, as far as whether you were on that level or whether you were a Motley or a Poison. I do know, like those really rap sort of ballads, nail though. That. <laughs> the giving, <laughs> giving yourself away, that was all the Desmond Child stuff on Detonator, but uh, the, you're right, though, at, by that point, all that stuff was too diluted and people were ready for mm-hmm. something new. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because yeah. a, a lot of that stuff sonically 
it just doesn't hold up because of the production. And I don't know if it was just massive amounts of cocaine, so they only heard the high end, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But, like, there's some riffs on the, those Rat albums that are heavy. Like, they wrote heavy riffs, but then, like, that, that Bow Hill production just kind of, you don't get it, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know, I don't know what it is about that stuff, because you can listen to something, you can listen to Stars from the 70s, and it still sounds fresh, because it's just organic, and it's not a lot of compression. And I think, for me, when it comes to that that 80s music that I'm not I'm not really a big fan of I think that's what it is though it's the actual sound because it's just it's, it's hard to listen to yeah some albums are a little more dated sounding and I think the Bow Hills um, but like they just remix some of the, like the Kicks albums and they sound really bright and fresh now um, which I wish more bands from that era would do but it just is it worth the time and money yeah let me ask you guys I wrote the liner notes to those Remixes. Whoa, there you go. (laughs) They're fantastic. (laughs) And I've always wished bands would do those kind of things. So when Kicks did it. But you know, Bo Hill did those mixes, right? Exactly. He's just, he's just, look, the thing is, and then then, uh, now I'm veering away, of course, but one of the things I like to point out about this shit is like the stakes, like, I, a terrible thing I'll say to like a band now. It's the worst thing I say to a band. I should never say it to a band. But like it's like a band of like it'll be like dudes my age and they're just doing it and like for fun and which is totally fine and they've got great songs. A lot of people I work with are like that. And like they'll be like agonizing over something. And if they really push me too far into like that, like my answer to shut shit down is like the stakes are too low to be worrying about this. And in a weird way. And it's, it's a great. fucked up thing to say, but no, the, the reason I say it is because, um, and usually they actually, it will snap people out of it and like, and, and then we all laugh and everything's cool. But back then the stakes were really high. Yeah. Like, so when you're making, and it's hard to remember that the stakes could be so high for guitar. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that like, if you fuck up a record, you couldn't, it could cost you three million records. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, yeah. if you don't make it sound like the other hit record, or you don't have the ballad, or you don't have the same snare sound that's on Hysteria or on the last record that you had that sold five million records, you're kicking, there's a lot of pressure on you to de- develop, to deliver a record that's going to be huge. So, I think that, you know, the flip side of like accusing things of being formulaic is that the reason they were formulaic is because there was so much money at stake. Like, again, you know, it's, it's like, seriously, if you are working on a rat album or a whatever, you know, pick a band and if you get it, okay, you'll sell like back then you'll sell 750,000 records. And if you get it right, you'll sell 4 million records. And, like, yeah. that's probably a record label's whole quarter and, like, a house for you if you've got points on that record. So the, the impetus as this era goes on and the money keeps increasing and people are selling 5 million, 6 million, 7 million records, so, like, go out, like, the impetus to go out on a limb is, you know, greatly reduced when you've got this proven commodity. No, you're right. And on that note, that's why they had all those ghostwriters because they had so much at stake. So like the Warren albums, those guys aren't on it. And I love that you document that in your book too with the guy that uh, did the guitar parts on the album and their conversation of like, um, 
oh, yeah, we told the band that this guy's going to come on, and they said, okay, no problem. And the band's like, we never said no problem. We just kind of were put in a corner. But um, that's all in, on the topic of, like, everything's at stake. What do we got to do? Get better musicians on the album. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I mean, you look at that hindsight and like the Warren thing in particular, and it's like, well, okay, I mean, clearly like Joey Allen, you know, and Eric Turner, like they can play guitar. Like, can they play guitar like Mike Slamer? Like, no, they cannot, which is why he played those solos. But I don't know, like, you know, would it have made a difference? Like, right. It, it sort of feels like maybe it wouldn't. Like they could, they could splice together a solo. They could have sliced like them, all these yeah. guys. but those yeah, songs you know, are like, good though. Get something serviceable. Yeah, <laughs> those and songs like, do get yeah, stuck in your head. Yeah, but someone like Dick Wagner the, played on absolutely. Aerosmith Records and Kiss Records. Of I mean, course. it's nothing it's new. You nothing, know what I mean? Right. But it's all for the same reason. But I guess too. I understand. Yeah, I understand the guys in Warren being sore about it, and you can make the case that like it might have not made a difference, or I don't know, maybe they really did sell a million more records because because of a hot shit solo. Like, there's really there's really no way to know. And so there's really no, like there's no right or wrong, you yeah. know, as far as, as far as the story, because each person has their opinion on how it should have gone. And it's like, well, this is the way it did go. And it worked out for everyone involved, at least for a time. Yeah. That kind of goes back to what and we're think, talking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, like we're from where both, like if you're, if you put yourself in Bo Hill's shoes, you produce the record, right? It's kind of like, I don't know, like, I think, and I think that this is what the guys in Warrant resent him most about. Is that that they, is that he's like they're like if he just given us a couple more days, we could have done it, you know. But I think Bo Hill is just sitting there. He's like, all right, I'm the dude who did the Rat Records, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I've sold a lot of records, and I'm not going down in flames on this uh, Warrant debut. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm not. This is not the one that's taking me out. And I don't have a good feeling about these guitar players and I don't want to hand it in and get flagged on this. And like, that's maybe not the best uh, decision-making process that may be bold or like be advocating for the artist, but I can see where a dude who's like riding the top of the thing is like, and he gets this feeling, man, maybe these guys aren't as good. And I've got this guy on speed dial. I can just get it done in three days and, and worry about the vocals. Like, you know, I don't know if it's the right answer, but you can definitely see how it happens. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, so, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because we were we were talking earlier about um, you know how things are on the, on the fire and then kind of over time. So, music is competition. Great music comes out of competition. Like, so you had the Beatles, and the competition then was to write a better song or a more far out song than say Glass Onion. You know what I mean? So, you all these songs like there's a period up to like '74 where even the AM radio songs are just these amazingly written lyrically and musically songs. And I think with the era that you're talking about now, the competition became hotshot guitar player because of Eddie and, and Randy Rhodes. And then it became how big your hair is. You know what I mean? And I think after a while, the songwriting started, and I understand bands are on tour and they're just trying to keep up, like you said, but like the songwriter, the songwriting did falter off pretty fast, even for a band like Twisted Sister, who I absolutely loved. Because like I said, I thought they were going to be the next Motorhead I saw him in 82 in a small club in Cleveland called the Engineers Building. I, I, it was just changed the world for me. And then, you know, poof, they had one more album, and to me, they were dead. But 
So it's just weird uh, at what people grabbed onto, and I wish it would have been the songwriting because there were so many great players back then in the 80s in these bands. Or how much fire. Yeah, how much fire. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny how many people you interviewed that couldn't make it into the book, and you even at least acknowledged them, which was really nice to you guys. Um, but people like Bruce Kulick, big names. Uh, Night Bob, who has how many stories in the industry? Let me ask you guys this uh, real Night quick. Bob is a, Go a wonderful resource. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he's a talker. He's a, oh, he's great. No, he, I've actually no. He's the sound for my band, so he's like a great. But like what you're saying, oh, like all right, whoa, 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 what band? Know, what band is this? Let's talk about this. <laughs> I was in, I was just no, I was just in like this like power pop band that was on Go Kart Records called Shake Appeal, and um, nice. He like when Night Bob's not on the road, you can just hire him to do sound. You know, like like and he's a great friend. He's a great dude, and he has lots of guitar stories. And he, He's like a guy around New York. So if you live in New York and you're in a band, you, you've hung with Night Bob. Like, he's around. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Nice. Let me, um, I mean, since you come from that power pop world, like, why do you think a band like Red Cross didn't really catch on with these fans? Because they were around at the same time. And, like, to me, Third Eye is a brilliant, you know, pop record that had some of the same characteristics that the same music had at the same time. I love Third Eye. It's brilliant. Um uh, Hold on one second. Sorry. Sorry. Please hold. <laughs> All good. Oh, I think Rich got knocked off. That's why he's not been... Um, oh, okay. He was just texting. So if you, if you can let him back in. Um, third Eye. You know, I just... Funny, I just did it... Inter- I did it a year and a half ago. For K-pop magazine. It just ran only online, sadly, but... Um, they talk about that a little. I think the thing is this, is that, and the reason why I will go down swinging for Poison any day of the week is that my like, favorite band of all time is staring at a giant Rick Nielsen poster right now. Ah, uh, there you I go. I love Cheap Trick. And like, to, like, I've seen them like 50 times. And to me, like, Poison is really Cheap Trick. Like, you know what I mean? Like, to me, like... C.C. DeVille is a, another iteration of that of the Rick Nielsen avatar. Like he's like a different version, mm-hmm. but he's got all the guitars. You know, and, and I love the humor of him, and I actually love how he plays and all that stuff. Um, and so I do think a lot of this me- music that we're talking about really is guitar-driven power pop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Particularly, Poison, the first Poison record is a perfect power pop record. And I, I mean, and so is really kind of, in a lot of ways, the first Motley record. There are great power pop songs littered throughout this genre. Um, and I think Red Cross did not have the sufficient dudeness in yeah. there. You know, I think that they're sort of like, that androgynous isn't even the right word. Like, I think their vibe just like, wasn't enough meat and potatoes. America wants some meat and potatoes. And even like somehow when they're dressed basically like women, um, you know, the guys in Poison managed to convey that because they're probably because they're from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Like, yeah. Their masculinity is not at question. So, um, you know, I think you know, there's so many great songs on Third Eye, but like, you know, it, they, they, what was what was Red Cross going to do? Go on the um, 
you know, go open for like, I don't know, winger. I think also back then, um, record labels were segregated. So like probably Red Cross was squarely in the college or alternative department of that label. That's great. And so like not getting the same push, but you know, it's weird. Yeah. Red Cross gotten multiple shots. Like, you know, you would think phase shifter is also really good. And Mm -hmm. so is, um, you know, uh, show world. And it's just like, it doesn't who, who, and you know, Loud guitars and a dude who sings like John Lennon. Like, why does not it not connect? Yeah, it, it's it's amazing know. that those guys got how many major label record deals when those were you know hard to get at that point, and they they were never successful, but they would always get major label deals. It's it's funny because um, music nerds love them. Like yeah. like me, if I was an A and R dude, I would sign Red Cross. Oh, in a second, because the fuck wouldn't sign Red Cross? But, yeah. like, but somehow it just doesn't translate. They're like a band's band. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, no one can sit at the McDonald's Brothers lunch table. They're just so different. They're their own thing. You know what I mean? And, and they bring it, like, even in the band Off, Steve McDonald plays bass in this, this band Off with, with you know, a um, guy from the Circle Jerks and the guy from Burning Brides. But he, his bass lines, he's still doing Tom Peterson or Ronnie Lane bass lines. They're still ripping off parts from the move in the middle of these songs. It's great. I mean, they're just, they're just music inside and out. They're fans, and I love that about them. Is that how you just describe Keith Morris? No, I was talking about Steve McDonald. Oh, Steve McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> hey, is, is Rich, are you back? Is Rich yeah, back? yeah, I got kicked okay. off. I mean, the thing, too, though, to say about Red Cross is if they had had success, like in that, if they had somehow been marketed as a quote unquote glam metal band in 1987 when Third Eye came out and even had like middling success, mm-hmm. they would have been excommunicated with, the, they would have been thrown out with the rest of the band. Yeah, me too. I would have done the same thing. I'm an asshole, but I would have, I would have done. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, I don't even know why I brought it up then. Like enough's right. enough. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's like one of those things. Like, like enough's enough is really a power pop band, mm-hmm. and um, they got you know Chuck too. So, gay succeeding in the '80s. If you succeeded enough and you were rich and you were set, great. But like, if you were to get, if you had the taint afterwards, you know, it was it was a very Thank bad you. thing to have. Yeah. Exactly. That's a, that's a strong word, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what happened to certain bands, you know? They they Twisted Sisters the best example cuz like I said, I mean, for us Motorhead kids, like we that was the next thing and but they had that taint of that um of that 84 success taint. and that hit single, which is great for those dudes, but it just it just never went away from it me. It taint what you thought it no. was. No. <laughs> no, not at all. So <laughs> let me ask you guys this before Keelan closes this up. Let me get your each of you guys your favorite album of the of that time period and the 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 worst most embarrassing album of that time period. Ooh, good question. <laughs> I love this. We'll start with you. You know, I, I think it's Go ahead, Tom. Sorry, Rich. No, you go first, Rich. I've been talking for like an hour <laughs> and you got kicked off. You know, I don't even uh, his favorite record would be kind of difficult to even pick one. If I was gonna pick one at this moment, I'd probably you know, it kind of goes back to the beginning. Like it might be too fast for love hmm. just because I think that, I mean, there, there, there's the fact that it is sort of in some ways, like the big bang of this stuff and like the beginning of it, but also like, it is just, you know, the, this whole conversation about power pop, like to me, that is a great power pop record as well. It's, it's got, it's a little bit of a punky record and it really just captures the exuberance of like, youth in a lot of ways like these guys sound really young they sound really raw 
Um, I think the songwriting is great. I think it really puts you, I think the best records really put you in the moment. And to me, that record, especially doing this book, like it sounds like that moment to me. Hmm. And it has that sort of, you know, wonderment and kind of naivete of, of what they were going through at that time and just kind of going for it. And I think it really holds up. And I think it's a record that sounds of that time actually sounds kind of not of that time and not like it doesn't really sound like a hair metal record per se um but you can hear the connection to it but it really is is kind of to me it kind of stands on its own um outside of all that i mean as far as you know on the opposite end of the spectrum like i don't know it's hard it's hard for me to say there's a lot of records i don't really love from that time that i always you know a lot of other people got and i never got i mean i i if I had to pick something, I, I'd probably say like any Dokken record, to be honest. Like <laughs> Dokken's a big part of this book, and I I loved, you know, I, I, I guess I listened to Dokken growing up, but the more, I, I, I don't, I don't really see that much of the appeal, of, you know, like I sort of respect George Lynch as a guitarist, but like what he does isn't really for me. And like, mm. I don't, the, the riffs will like, Kind of like melodies, I'm like, I don't know, Don Dotkin to me is not the strongest singer. I mean, I just to, I'd, I'd sort of bring up this plug that, like, not too long ago, Tom texted me this, like, link to a YouTube video, like a full Dotkin concert from his product, 87-ish. We do this a lot, still, even after working yeah. this for four years. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And, like, we're playing, you know, they're playing in an arena. They're probably not the headliner. No, Aerosmith they're, was. They're Permanent they're Vacation. Dead. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so it's probably that time. <laughs> they're definitely they're playing on a, on a, you know, on a shortened stage. Like, Violet and Brown Strums are pretty far up, but they're kind of doing their thing, and it's like an hour-long show, and like, you know, it's sort of there. You can kind of see like there's not the the sort of charisma that you would see if like a Poison came out or a Motley or whatever. Like, Don Dokken doesn't really command the stage, and George is playing great, but he kind of keeps his back to the audience and is facing his aunts and is crouched over. And there's clearly like no interaction between the guys because we all know they don't really like each other. Yeah. Um, you know, and the songs aren't really that engaging either. It's just like, well, on the one hand, this is a band where their internal tensions probably stopped them from going as far as they could. But on the other hand, I was sort of like, you know what, for what, for what they're putting out there, like, they did all right. <laughs> you know? I yeah no so, I love the dark so stuff. That'll be my answer. Great. How about you, Tom? Um, I would say for me, my favorite, like in terms of like what I just listen to all the time. I, I still listen like the the first Poison record. Uh, look, you know, look what the cat dragged in is like it's in my records that I just like actually listen to for pleasure like any of those songs comes on the radio I'm happy to hear them there's a scrappiness to it, it the songs are great there's a sense of humor um, it, it sounds great it's shitty and awesome uh, so I just I love that record I think you know it's funny I also it's hard to not say appetite for destruction but I'm so that record has reached a saturation point that I can't really um, process it anymore. I've just heard it so so many too many times. So, um, but yeah, to me it would be the Poison record. And then, like a shout, like 
a weird record that we haven't talked about a lot during this um during during doing press for this book, but like actually has some amazing shit on it, but we didn't really get too deep with them. The the and it's like a, a testament to the biggest amount of money being spent and like John Kalagner putting pulling out all the stops. You know, that fucking white snake record mm. has some really good shit on it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but the thing about White Snake though, but, um, like they're a seventies band. You know what I mean? Like they kinda yeah, spilled exactly. over, but yeah, they have no, that totally. soul. And there are, so there are a lot of records that I think are really good from the era. I think there are a ton of records um, that have, as with any era, but like, you know, going back and listening to a lot of these bands, I, don't, I just don't want to shoot fish in a barrel. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of records, like that. Like the single that you saw that had Bangers Ball is pretty good, and the rest of it is just, just like fucking garbage. Like, <laughs> You know, um, no, seriously, like, like when you go back and you listen and you're like, oh, no wonder people think this music sucks. Like this whole record is terrible, you know, like, and, and, and so there is all, I, I will not pick one record, but I will cop to the fact that there are copious numbers of, of, and while I love this music, there are copious numbers of major label releases from this era that are like, the lyrics suck, the songs kind of suck, and, like, there's, like, two okay songs. And, like, you know, that's probably true of all genres, but there really is some, you know, stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't... I, I also do find uh, Dawkins to be pretty plotting. Like, the only thing... That, the one thing that I like that has continued to fascinate me about Dawkins is that, um, that Into the Fire's Bridge is also the hook of in my dream <laughs> well listen paul stanley did that with sure know something and tonight you belong to me like not even a year apart you know what i mean like just use the same chord progression so that's good that you are it works once whoever this twice. person is whoever this person is on the other end of the phone who keeps like <laughs> dropping these facts <laughs> like this Tim. one guy Talking kiss related facts yeah. oh i got yeah. i got your kiss facts <laughs> Call back later for those. Yeah, but it but it is funny. Like when you mentioned, like you know, for me, like I grew up loving Kiss, obviously, and then you go back and you listen. Like I was listening to Blackfoot's first album, and they have the song "Take a Train." It's just so rocking. And then I go, like, let's see what Kiss was doing at the same time. And I put on, it's like "Ladies Room," and it's just so <laughs> terrible. You know what I mean? It's just like then you understand why the older kids in the neighborhood were like, "Kiss sucks," because there was some really cool shit going on. But I was enamored by the volume and and the danger of Kiss. I still love. Them. So. Well, we'll wrap it up because I know uh, we've gone over time, but we appreciate you guys being here. And uh, just two footnotes. For one, I think this is the first book I've ever read with a zero, zero spelling errors. And I wow. thought I couldn't wow. find one. And I always find at least one, some stupid thing that's not important, but I couldn't find any spelling errors. So that was funny. But um, what I took away from the book mostly was... Uh, how far all these bands are willing to go to make it and their drive when they were young. And um, I just really appreciate it. Um, so thank you guys very much for being a part of this and thank you for the book, Nothing But A Good Time. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It's like from someone that didn't like that music growing up, like I really found the book enjoyable. So I don't yeah, know no, if that's I a sales pitch, but that's the truth. <laughs> I, th I think that it's it's very important right, that you well, did... There you go that very uh it's a very comprehensive look at the scene and 
Um, you know, like you said, there's there were some things that made the scene look bad, but there's also, you know, me not being a fan of particularly every band that you had in the book, um, I tend to like grow a lot more respect for um, for these bands and their hard work and their their work ethic. Um, and you you kind of showed that, especially for people. If the, you know, we're we're looking at this in a scope of a musician looking at this, but people who don't play music, um, I think, will look at this and just kind of see how much work it it takes to be in a band um, and to make it. So, um, I mean, that that's sort of like the catch. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Like, I can't. Neither of us could expect to make you read this book and and. Be, like join the LA Guns fan club. Like I can't do that. You know? um, but hopefully that's, you know, one of our goals, read this and you will have a respect for the work ethic and the commitment. Yeah, definitely. And if you're in a band as like for both Rich and I, as people who work in band and kind of like trying to make it for a bunch of years, you know, even while we had jobs, it's kind of like a weird, rude awakening of like, oh yeah, you didn't actually like. I I won't speak for Rich, but for myself, like, you didn't really work that hard, bro. Okay. <laughs> you know? Well, no, this is great stuff. We really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Can't recommend this yeah, book enough, you. everyone. Even if you didn't grow up with this kind of music, like, like they said, if you want to be in a band, this is one of those essential books to read of how hard it is and how hard you have to work. So thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, All right, you. thank you. Thank you. Rock and roll. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.